chapter nine of abraham lincoln a history volume six this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. abraham lincoln a history volume six by john hay and john george nicolay chapter nine the removal of mcclellan the latter part of september wore away in resting the exhausted army of the potomac and beginning anew the endless work of equipment and supply work which from the nature of the case can never be finished in an army of two hundred thousand any more than in a city of the same size but this was a lesson which mcclellan appeared never able to learn so long as a single brigade commander complained that some of his men needed new shoes it seemed impossible for him to undertake active operations until that special want was supplied when that was done some company of cavalry was short a few horses and the vicious circle of importunate demand and slow supply continued forever on the twenty third of september general mcclellan discovered symptoms of heavy reinforcements moving towards the enemy from winchester and charlestown the fact of the enemy remaining so long in his front instead of appearing to him as a renewed opportunity only excited in him the apprehension that he would be again attacked he therefore set up a new clamour for reinforcements a defeat at this juncture would be ruinous to our cause general sumner with his corps and williams's banks's occupy harper's ferry and the surrounding heights i think is the doleful plaint with which the dispatch closes he will be able to hold his position till reinforcements arrive four days afterwards he writes again in the same strain this army is not now in condition to undertake another campaign my present purpose is to hold the army about as it is now rendering harper's ferry secure and watching the river closely intending to attack the enemy should he attempt to cross to this side he is full of apprehension in regard to an attack upon maryland and prays that the river may rise so that the enemy may not cross the president sick at heart at this delay resolved at the end of the month to make a visit to mcclellan's camp to see if in a personal interview he could not inspire him with some sense of the necessity of action the morning report of the thirtieth of september showed the enormous aggregate of the army of the potomac present and absent including banks's command in washington of three hundred and three thousand nine hundred and fifty nine of this one thousand one seven hundred and fifty six were absent twenty eight thousand four hundred and fifty eight on special duty and seventy three thousand six hundred and one present for duty in banks's command leaving one hundred thousand one hundred and forty four men present for duty under mcclellan's immediate command this vast multitude in arms was visited by the president in the first days of october so far as he could see it was a great army ready for any work that could be asked of it during all his visit he urged with as much energy as was consistent with his habitual courtesy the necessity of an immediate employment of this force mcclellan met all his suggestions and entreaties with an amiable inertia which deeply discouraged the president 
after a day and a night spent in such an interchange of views he left his tent early in the morning and walked with a friend to an eminence which commanded a view of a great part of the camp for miles beneath them spread the white tents of the mighty hosts glistening in the rising sun mr lincoln gazed for a while in silence upon the scene then turned to his friend and said do you know what this is he answered in some astonishment it is the army of the potomac so it is called responded the president but that is a mistake it is only mcclellan's bodyguard he went back to washington taking little comfort from his visit and after a few days of painful deliberation getting no news of any movement he sent mcclellan the following positive instructions washington d c october sixth eighteen sixty two major general mcclellan i am instructed to telegraph you as follows the president directs that you cross the potomac and give battle to the enemy or drive him south your army must move now while the roads are good if you cross the river between the enemy and washington and cover the latter by your operation you can be reinforced with thirty thousand men if you move up the valley of the shenandoah not more than twelve thousand or fifteen thousand can be sent to you the president advises the interior line between washington and the enemy but does not order it he is very desirous that your army move as soon as possible you will immediately report what line you adopt and when you intend to cross the river also to what point the reinforcements are to be sent it is necessary that the plan of your operations be positively determined on before orders are given for building bridges and repairing railroads i am directed to add that the secretary of war and the general-in-chief fully concur with the president in these instructions h w halleck general-in-chief these orders were emphasized a few days later by a repetition of the same stinging insult which lee had once before inflicted upon mcclellan on the peninsula stuart's cavalry crossed the potomac rode entirely around the union army recrossing the river lower down and joining lee again without damage mcclellan seems to have felt no mortification from this disgraceful occurrence which he used merely as a pretext for new complaints against the government he seemed to think that he had presented a satisfactory excuse for his inefficiency when he reported to halleck that his cavalry had marched seventy-eight miles in twenty-four hours while stuart's was marching ninety he pretended that he had at the time only a thousand cavalry this led to a remarkable correspondence between him and the government which shows the waste and destruction of military material under mcclellan by the reports from the quartermaster-general's office there were sent to the army of the potomac during the six weeks ending october fourteenth ten thousand two hundred and fifty four horses and a very large number of mules the cost of the horses issued within the last six weeks to the army of the potomac says general meigs is probably not less than one million two hundred thousand dollars we may well ask in the words used by the quartermaster-general in another place is there an instance on record of such a drain and destruction of horses in a country not a desert 
day after day the tedious controversy went on this frightful waste of horses was turned by mcclellan as he turned everything into a subject of reproach against the government to one of his complaining dispatches the president sent this sharp rejoinder will you pardon me for asking what the horses of your army have done since the battle of antietam that fatigues anything and again stuart's cavalry outmarched ours having certainly done more marked service on the peninsula and everywhere since these dispatches elicited only new complaints vindications and explanations it was not alone the pretended lack of horses which kept him idle in his dispatches to washington he continually complained and the complaint was echoed by his adherents that the army was unable to improve the fine weather on account of the deficiency of all manner of supplies the secretary of war thinking it necessary at last to take notice of this widespread rumor addressed a letter to the general-in-chief demanding a report upon the subject general halleck reported that on several occasions when general mcclellan had telegraphed that his army was deficient in certain supplies it was ascertained that in every instance the requisition had been immediately filled except in one where the quartermaster-general was forced to send to philadelphia for the articles needed he reported that there had been no neglect or delay in issuing all the supplies asked for and added his belief that no armies in the world while in campaign have been more promptly or better supplied than ours the general-in-chief further reported that there had been no such want of supplies as to prevent general mcclellan's compliance with the orders issued four weeks before to advance against the enemy that had he moved to the south side of the potomac he could have received his supplies almost as readily as by remaining inactive on the north side he then goes at some length into a detailed and categorical contradiction of general mcclellan's complaining dispatches but we need not go outside of the general's own staff for a direct denial of his accusations general rufus ingalls the chief quartermaster of the army of the potomac makes this just and sensible statement in a letter to the quartermaster-general dated the twenty sixth of october i have seen no real suffering for want of clothing and do not believe there has been any only where it can be laid directly to the charge of regimental and brigade commanders and their quartermasters and i have laboured i hope with some effect in trying to instruct them i have frequently remarked that an army will never move if it waits until all the different commanders report that they are ready and want no more supplies it has been my pride to know the fact that no army was ever more perfectly supplied than this has been as a general rule the president weary of the controversy at last replied most certainly i intend no injustice to any and if i have done any i deeply regret it to be told after more than five weeks total inaction of the army and during which period we have sent to the army every fresh horse we possibly could amounting in the whole to seven thousand nine hundred and eighteen that the cavalry horses were too much fatigued to move presents a very cheerless almost hopeless prospect for the future and it may have forced something of impatience in my dispatch if not recruited and rested then when could they ever be general halleck in a letter of the seventh of october had urged mcclellan to follow and seek to punish the enemy 
he said there is a decided want of legs in our troops they have too much immobility and we must try to remedy the defect a reduction of baggage and baggage trains will effect something but the real difficulty is they are not sufficiently exercised in marching they lie still in camp too long after a hard march one day is time enough to rest lying still beyond that time does not rest the men the president's proclamation of emancipation had been promulgated to the army in general orders on the twenty fourth of september it will be remembered that general mcclellan in his manifesto from harrison's landing had admonished the president against any such action his subsequent negotiations with the democratic politicians in the north had not tended to make him any more favorably disposed towards such radical action his first impulse was to range himself openly against the proclamation we are informed by general w f smith that mcclellan prepared a protest against it which he read to some of his intimate friends in the army the advice of smith and perhaps others induced him not to commit so fatal a breach of discipline for a moment he thought of throwing up his commission in a private letter of september twenty five he said the president's late proclamation the continuation of stanton and halleck in office render it almost impossible for me to retain my commission and self-respect at the same time he could not however pass over with entire silence an order of such momentous importance and so after two weeks of meditation having heard from his friends in new york he issued on the seventh of october a singular document calling the attention of the officers and soldiers of his army to the president's proclamation he made absolutely no reference to the proclamation itself he used it as he says simply as an opportunity of defining the relation borne by all persons in the military service toward the civil authorities a relation which most of his army understood already at least as well as himself in a few commonplace phrases he restates the political axiom that the civil authority is paramount in our government and that the military is subordinate to it he therefore deprecated any intemperate discussion of public measures determined upon and declared by the government as tending to impair and destroy the discipline and efficiency of troops and significantly adds the remedy for political errors if any are committed is to be found only in the action of the people at the polls there is no reason to believe that this order of general mcclellan's was issued with any but the best intentions he believed and he thought the army believed the president's anti-slavery policy was ill-advised and might prove disastrous he therefore issued this order commanding his soldiers to be moderate in their criticisms and condemnation of the president and to leave to the people at the polls the work of correcting or punishing him when the troops of the army of the potomac had an opportunity of expressing at the polls their sense of the political question at issue between lincoln and mcclellan the general had occasion to discover that there was a difference between the sentiment of staff headquarters and the sentiment of the rank and file the president's peremptory order to move which we have mentioned as having been issued on the seventh of october having produced no effect he wrote to general mcclellan on the thirteenth of the month a letter so important in its substance and in its relations to subsequent events that it must be printed entire 
having already given the general his orders and told him what to do he now not only tells him how to do it but furnishes him unanswerable reasons why it should be done my dear sir you remember my speaking to you of what i called your over-cautiousness are you not over-cautious when you assume that you cannot do what the enemy is constantly doing should you not claim to be at least his equal in prowess and act upon the claim as i understand you telegraphed general halleck that you cannot subsist your army at winchester unless the railroad from harper's ferry to that point be put in working order but the enemy does now subsist his army at winchester at a distance nearly twice as great from railroad transportation as you would have to do without the railroad last named he now wagons from culpepper courthouse which is just about twice as far as you would have to do from harper's ferry he is certainly not more than half as well provided with wagons as you are i certainly should be pleased for you to have the advantage of the railroad from harper's ferry to winchester but it wastes all the remainder of autumn to give it to you and in fact ignores the question of time which cannot and must not be ignored again one of the standard maxims of war as you know is to operate upon the enemy's communications as much as possible without exposing your own you seem to act as if this applies against you but cannot apply in your favor change positions with the enemy and think you not he would break your communication with richmond within the next twenty-four hours you dread his going into pennsylvania but if he does so in full force he gives up his communications to you absolutely and you have nothing to do but to follow and ruin him if he does so with less than full force fall upon him beat what is left behind all the easier exclusive of the water-line you are now nearer richmond than the enemy is by the route that you can and he must take why can you not reach there before him unless you admit that he is more than your equal on a march his route is the arc of a circle while yours is the cord the roads are as good on yours as on his you know i desired but did not order you to cross the potomac below instead of above the shenandoah and blue ridge my idea was that this would at once menace the enemy's communications which i would seize if he would permit if he should move northward i would follow him closely holding his communications if he should prevent our seizing his communications and move toward richmond i would press closely to him fight him if a favorable opportunity should present and at least try to beat him to richmond on the inside track i say try if we never try we shall never succeed if he makes a stand at winchester moving neither north nor south i would fight him there on the idea that if we cannot beat him when he bears the wastage of coming to us we never can when we bear the wastage of going to him this proposition is a simple truth and is too important to be lost sight of for a moment in coming to us he tenders us an advantage which we should not waive we should not so operate as to merely drive him away as we must beat him somewhere or fail finally we can do it if at all easier near to us than far away if we cannot beat the enemy where he now is we never can he again being within the entrenchments of richmond 
recurring to the idea of going to richmond on the inside track the facility of supplying from the side away from the enemy is remarkable as it were by the different spokes of a wheel extending from the hub toward the rim and this whether you move directly by the cord or on the inside arc hugging the blue ridge more closely the cord line as you see carries you by aldie haymarket and fredericksburg and you see how turnpikes railroads and finally the potomac by aquia creek meet you at all points from washington the same only the lines lengthened a little if you press closer to the blue ridge part of the way the gaps through the blue ridge i understand to be about the following distances from harper's ferry to wit vestal's five miles gregory's thirteen snickers eighteen ashby's twenty eight manassas thirty eight chester forty five and thornton's fifty three i should think it preferable to take the route nearest the enemy disabling him to make an important move without your knowledge and compelling him to keep his forces together for dread of you the gaps would enable you to attack if you should wish for a great part of the way you would be practically between the enemy and both washington and richmond enabling us to spare you the greatest number of troops from here when at length running for richmond ahead of him enables him to move this way if he does so turn and attack him in the rear but i think he should be engaged long before such point is reached it is all easy if our troops march as well as the enemy and it is unmanly to say they cannot do it this letter is in no sense an order yours truly a lincoln in the absence of any definite plan or purpose of his own general mcclellan accepted this plan of the president's giving in his report a characteristic reason that it would secure me the largest accession of force but even after he adopted this decision the usual delays supervened and on the twenty first after describing the wretched condition of his cavalry he asked whether the president desired him to march on the enemy at once or to await the reception of the new horses to which on the same day the president directed the general-in-chief to send the following reply your telegram of twelve m has been submitted to the president he directs me to say that he has no change to make in his order of the sixth instant if you have not been and are not now in condition to obey it you will be able to show such want of ability the president does not expect impossibilities but he is very anxious that all this good weather should not be wasted in inactivity telegraph when you will move and on what lines you propose to march with the exercise of a very little sagacity general mcclellan should have discovered from the tone of this dispatch that the president's mood was taking on a certain tinge of austerity nevertheless he continued his preparations at perfect leisure and four days afterwards he sent a long letter asking for definite instructions in regard to the details of guards to be left on the upper potomac to which he received a reply saying the government has entrusted you with defeating and driving back the rebel army in your front and directing him to use his own discretion as to the matters in question as general mcclellan in his dispatch had referred with some apprehension to the probable march of bragg's army eastward general halleck concluded his answer with this significant intimation you are within twenty miles of lee while bragg is distant about four hundred miles he finally got his army across the potomac on the first of november 
it had begun crossing on the twenty sixth of october and the several detachments as they arrived in virginia were slowly distributed on the eastern slope of the blue ridge under the vigilant and now distrustful eye of the president there is no doubt that mr lincoln's regard and confidence which had withstood so much from general mcclellan was giving way the president had resisted in his behalf for more than a year the earnest and bitter opposition of the most powerful and trusted friends of the administration mcclellan had hardly a supporter left among the republican senators and few among the most prominent members of the majority in the house of representatives in the cabinet there was the same unanimous hostility to the young general in the meeting of the second of september when the president announced that he had placed mcclellan in command of the forces in washington he was met by an outbreak of protest and criticism from the leading members of the government which might well have shaken the nerves of any ruler but the president stood manfully by his action he admitted the infirmities of mcclellan his lack of energy and initiative but for this exigency he considered him the best man in the service and the country must have the benefit of his talents although he had behaved badly we need not refer again to the magnanimity with which the president had overlooked the insolent dispatches of general mcclellan from savage's station and harrison's bar he closed his ears persistently during all the months of the winter and spring to the stories which came to him from every quarter in regard to the tone of factious hostility to himself which prevailed at mcclellan's headquarters but these stories increased to such an extent during the summer and autumn that even in his mind so slow to believe evil they occasioned some trouble soon after the battle of antietam an incident came to his hearing of which he felt himself obliged to take notice major john j key brother to colonel thomas m key of mcclellan's staff was reported replying to a question put by a brother officer why was not the rebel army bagged immediately after the battle near sharpsburg to have said that is not the game the object is that neither army shall get much advantage of the other that both shall be kept in the field till they are exhausted when we will make a compromise and save slavery the president sent a letter to major key to inform him of this grave charge and to invite him to disprove it within twenty-four hours a few minutes after this notice was sent the major appeared at the executive mansion in company with major levi c turner the officer to whom the remark had been made a trial as prompt as those of st louis dispensing justice under the oak at vincennes then took place the president was judge and jury attorney for the prosecution and for the defence and he added to these functions that of clerk of the court and made a record of the proceedings with his own hand which we copy from his manuscript at about eleven o'clock a m september twenty seventh eighteen sixty two major key and major turner appeared before me major turner says as i remember it the conversation was i asked the question why we did not bag them after the battle of sharpsburg major key's reply was that was not the game that we should tire the rebels out and ourselves that that was the only way the union could be preserved we come together fraternally and slavery be saved 
on cross-examination major turner says he has frequently heard major key converse in regard to the present troubles and never heard him utter a sentiment unfavorable to the maintenance of the union he has never uttered anything which he major t would call disloyalty the particular conversation detailed was a private one upon the reverse of this record the president made the following endorsement in my view it is wholly inadmissible for any gentleman holding a military commission from the united states to utter such sentiments as major key is within proved to have done therefore let major john j key be forthwith dismissed from the military service of the united states the president's memorandum continues at the interview of major key and major turner with the president major key did not attempt to controvert the statement of major turner but simply insisted and tried to prove that he was true to the union the substance of the president's reply was that if there was a game even among union men to have our army not take any advantage of the enemy when it could it was his object to break up that game speaking of the matter afterwards the president said i dismissed major key because i thought his silly treasonable expressions were staff talk and i wished to make an example he was still not ready to condemn general mcclellan he determined to give him one more chance if mcclellan after antietam had destroyed the army of lee his official position would have been impregnable if after lee had recrossed the potomac mcclellan had followed and delivered a successful battle in virginia nothing could afterwards have prevented his standing as the foremost man of his time the president in his intense anxiety for the success of the national arms would have welcomed mcclellan as his own presumptive successor if he could have won that position by successful battle but the general's inexplicable slowness had at last excited the president's distrust he began to think before the end of october that mcclellan had no real desire to beat the enemy he set in his own mind the limit of his forbearance he adopted for his guidance a test which he communicated to no one until long afterwards on which he determined to base his final judgment of mcclellan if he should permit lee to cross the blue ridge and place himself between richmond and the army of the potomac he would remove him from command when it was reported in washington that lee and longstreet were at culpeper court house the president sent an order dated the fifth of november to general mcclellan which reached him at rectortown on the seventh directing him to report for further orders at trenton new jersey and to turn the command of the army of the potomac over to general burnside general c p buckingham delivered his message first to burnside and then came with him to mcclellan's tent mcclellan says in his memoirs that with the eyes of the two generals upon him he read the papers with a smile but when they were gone he turned to finish a letter he had been writing and broke out in the heartfelt ejaculation alas for my poor country he took credit to himself in after years for not heading a mutiny of the troops he said many were in favor of my refusing to obey the order and of marching upon washington to take possession of the government thus ended the military career of george brinton mcclellan 
now that the fierce passions of the war its suspicions and its animosities have passed away we are able to judge him more accurately and more justly than was possible amid that moral and material tumult and confusion he was as far from being the traitor and craven that many thought him as from being the martyr and hero that others would like to have him appear it would be unfair to deny that he rendered to the full measure of his capacity sincere and honest service to the republic his technical knowledge was extensive his industry untiring his private character was pure and upright his integrity without stain in the private life to which he retired he carried with him the general respect and esteem and the affection of a troop of friends and when by their partiality he was afterwards called to the exercise of important official functions he adorned every office he held with the highest civic virtues and accomplishments no one now can doubt his patriotism or his honour and the fact that it was once doubted illustrates merely the part which the blackest suspicions play in a great civil war and the stress to which the public mind was driven in the effort to account for the lack of results he gave the country in return for the vast resources which were so lavishly placed in his hands it was in this native inability to use great means to great ends that his failure as a general lay it was in his temperament to exaggerate the obstacles in front of him and this added to his constitutional aversion to prompt decisions caused those endless delays which wasted the army exasperated the country and gave the enemy unbroken leisure for maturing his plans and constant opportunity for executing them his lethargy of six months in front of washington to the wonder and scorn of the southern generals his standing at gaze at yorktown halted with his vast army by magruder's men in buckram his innocent astonishment at williamsburg at finding the rebels would not give up richmond without a fight his station astride the chickahominy waiting for the enemy to grow strong enough to attack him while his brave soldiers were fading to spectres with the marsh fever his failure to assume the offensive after the confederate repulse at seven pines his second refusal of the favors of the fortune of war when lee took his army north of the chickahominy and porter fought him all day with little more than one corps but with splendid courage his starting for the james in this crisis of his fate when he should have marched upon richmond his final retreat from malvern hill to harrison's landing breaking the hearts of the soldiers who had won on that field a victory so complete and so glorious all these mistakes proved how utterly incapable he was of leading a great army in grand war no general had ever been offered such wonderful opportunities and they continued to be offered to him to the end when pope had drawn away the enemy from richmond and given him an unmolested embarkation and had fought with undaunted valor against lee's army before which at last he was forced to give way for want of the relief which he had the right to expect from mcclellan the president magnanimously ignoring all his own causes of quarrel gave to mcclellan once more his old army reinforced by popes and sent him against an enemy who in a contempt for his antagonist acquired in the peninsula had crossed the potomac and then divided his army in half as a crowning favor of chance this was made known to mcclellan 
and even this incalculable advantage he frittered away and gave lee forty-eight hours to call in his scattered battalions after antietam for six long weeks of beautiful autumn weather he lingered on the north bank of the potomac under the constant pressure of the president's persuasions and afterwards under the lash of his orders and reproaches unable to make up his mind to pursue the enemy so long as he could find excuse for delay in a missing shoelace or a broken limber the devoted affection which he received from his army was strange when we consider how lacking he was in those qualities which generally excite the admiration of soldiers when sumner swinging his hat charged in front of his lines at savage's station his white hair blowing in the wind when phil kearney who had lost his bridle arm in mexico rode in the storm of bullets with his reins in his teeth his sword in his right hand there was something which struck the imagination of their troopers more than far more serious merits would have done but no one ever saw general mcclellan rejoicing in battle at williamsburg the first peninsular fight while hooker and kearney and hancock were in the thick of the conflict he was on the wharf at yorktown very busy doing an assistant quartermaster's duty the day of fair oaks he spent on the north side of the river when the current of war rolled to the north side at beaver dam creek and gaines's mill he stayed on the south bank during the retreat to the james he was far in advance selecting with his intelligent engineer's eye the spots where sumner franklin and the rest were to fight their daily battles and even in the fury and thunder of malvern hill the most splendid feat of arms ever performed by the army of the potomac a sight which a man with the true soldier blood in his veins might give his life to see he spent the greater part of those glorious hours the diapason of his greatest victory booming in his ears in his camp at haxall's or on board the gunboats coldly and calmly making his arrangements for the morrow's retreat and the cooperation of the navy and at antietam the only battle where he really saw his own troops attacking the enemy he enjoyed that wonderful sight the whole day says general palfrey till towards the middle of the afternoon when all the fighting was over on the high ground near prize house where he had some glasses strapped to the fence so that he could look in different directions we make no imputation on his courage he was a brave man but he was too much cumbered with other things to take part in his own battles with such limitations as these it is not likely that posterity will rank him among the leading generals of our war the most his apologists ask for him is a place among the respectable painstaking officers of the second order of talent that middle category of meritorious commanders but when we see such ardent friends and admirers as general webb and general palfrey brought by a conscientious and careful study of his career to such a conviction of his continuous mistakes as they have expressed we may well conclude that the candid historian of the future will have no sentiment but wonder when he comes to tell the story of his long mismanagement of a great brave and devoted army backed by a government which strained every nerve to support him and by a people whose fiery zeal would have made him the idol of the nation if he had given them the successes which their sacrifices deserved and which were a dozen times within his grasp we have evidence from a candid and intelligent if not altogether impartial witness of the impression made upon the peace party of the north by the dismissal of general mcclellan from command 
lord lyons the british minister at washington arrived in new york from a visit to england on the eighth of november eighteen sixty two the democrats or the conservatives as he called them had carried the state and elected mr seymour governor he found them in great exultation over their victory they imagined that the government would at once desist from the measures which they had denounced as arbitrary or illegal or if not at once they were certain that after the first of january when mr seymour would be inaugurated the government would not dare to exercise its war powers within the limits of the state of new york they confided to the urbane and genial representative of the british government much more spacious hopes than these hopes which they were not yet ready to avow to their own countrymen that the president would seek to terminate the war not to push it to extremity that he would endeavor to effect a reconciliation with the people of the south and renounce the idea of subjugating or exterminating them but these rising hopes lord lyons says were dashed by the next day's news the dismissal of general mcclellan caused an irritation not unmixed with consternation and despondency the general had been regarded as the representative of conservative principles in the army support of him had been made one of the articles of the conservative electoral program his dismissal was taken as a sign that the president had thrown himself entirely into the arms of the extreme radical party and that the attempt to carry out the policy of that party would be persisted in the party and the policy referred to were of course the republican party of the nation and the policy of carrying the war through to the end and saving the union intact by all the means within the power of the government and in this forecast the conservative gentlemen of new york who sought the accomplished envoy of great britain to unbosom to him their joys and their griefs showed that however they may have been lacking in patriotism or self-respect they were not deficient in logic or sagacity end of chapter nine